interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Good morning, evening, afternoon, everyone. It is Brian Kluger with my bloody podcast, along with the uh, the the cult leader the- himself, Preston Botta. How are you today, good sir? Or better yet. I'm the Rick Dalton, and you're my Cliff Booth. Ooh, yes, I want to be Cliff Booth so bad. And our get and our and our guest is our Sharon Tate. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, so this is our 60th episode of My Bloody Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and uh, for our 60th episode, we are doing an all Charlie Manson episode. Manson movies, Manson movies everywhere, Charles Manson. Uh, We're going to abandon our uh, usual format uh, for this episode and just talk about Charlie Manson in the Manson movies that uh, were inspired by this insane, crazy cult leader who died a couple years ago. Great Um, man. And uh, additionally, for our main event, our main feature presentation, the new Quentin Tarantino movie, the ninth movie under Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, we're going to be talking about that quite a bit on the episode. And of course, when we do that, we are going to have our favorite Sharon Tate, uh, James Cole Clay, <laughs> joining us. So very excited. Preston, are you excited to talk about this movie? Because we saw it. In the same theater, we didn't sit next to each other because we were assigned seats, and I didn't like it. Um, but because uh, I wanted to sit by you, but uh... yeah, that was a bummer. Like I just walked in because I did like a, a tour upstairs of the thirty-five millimeter process, and I like showed up and I was like, I didn't see anybody that I knew in there. But yet I was seeing pictures on people's Instagrams after. I was like, oh shit, Susan was there, Brian was there. How did I not see any of them? And especially like not when we were leaving the theater, like that's the time to like geek out and have fun. And we didn't get that chance. No, we all just kind of disappeared. I, it was unfortunate. I don't I don't like when they do the assigned seats just because uh, I'd rather sit with my friends. <laughs> and, yeah. Like I would love to sit with you and Preston. Uh, I mean, Preston yeah. and Susan. <laughs> yeah. Well, when food's involved, it gets a little more complicated. True, true. So, uh, Preston, what are, what what are we? How are we doing the show today? We don't have our regular format. I am yeah, lost. we don't. We don't. Yeah, we don't have. <laughs> where's the guidelines? Um, I don't know. I, I figured that we could, because uh, you're the guy that knows the most about Manson movies. Last week I talked about Charlie Says, so I'd just be kicking that dead horse again if I did that. But um, I feel I've only had a. Ex- experience with just a few manson films uh i know for sure that i've seen the 2004 helter skelter where upham played charles manson and then uh i've seen the one from the 70s um and i I think that's it 
So uh, I know that you've talked about the Manson family, I'm pretty sure. Um, and there was some other ones, uh, maybe the Manson family vacation. But um, I guess we could just, just discuss some of the Manson films that uh, that you think are good and worth talking about. And then we can just kind of go from there. Uh, yeah, the I saw back in 2013, and I can't believe that's been five years now, which is crazy. But there was a movie called The Manson Family that I saw back then, and this movie was released in 2003 and is a very crazy movie about the Manson family and kind of like how they worked inside their commune. Uh, So you didn't see this one? No, I, I haven't seen it. Okay, I, I highly recommend it. I think you could probably get a copy on Amazon for about 25 bucks or something like that. Uh, but it, it's definitely worth having in your collection because you probably haven't seen anything like it. But uh, this film uh, goes in uh, chronological order, um, starting with a very young Manson, a young Charlie Manson, who was more of like the hippie songwriter guitar playing days type of thing. Uh, And then he meets people, recruits people, and then begins to really take charge of the group. And this movie shows like his manipulative and chaotic ways of getting his followers, uh, which is pretty cool. And what they do in this movie is they uh, intersperse archival footage and present day Mm. interviews uh, with the people involved with the Manson family, and they discuss their motivations and the their thought process through kind of like their evil deeds and stuff like that. So it's like it's like a really kind of trippy movie, uh, which is interesting. And so like the overall arc of the story, the Manson family uh, basically is it centers around a reporter doing a story on the Manson family who. Uh, is an unknowingly marked uh, for a killing of the Manson family. So kind of like a a Leslie Vernon behind the mask type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is just kind of a little piece of the puzzle uh, in in this movie. So other segments that are in here are kind of like drug sequences, rape, murder, and actual blood orgies, <laughs> which are kind of like, they're not faint for the heart, really. So, uh, yeah, this is a movie that kind of discusses uh, or shows all of this and just kind of shows how Manson went from the songwriter to this cult leader and how he kind of brainwashed and manipulated everyone into following his orders. Because, again, I don't think Charles Manson uh, really ever killed anybody himself, like actual stabbed anybody. But I think he, like, just kind of told people. Instigated it all. Yes. So what's interesting in this on this Blu-ray, if you get it, there's an audio commentary by the director who talks about all of – the, the movie and stuff like that it's this commentary is very bizarre like you have to listen to it it's really weird um and then uh there is a uh what's it called an interview with charles manson himself it's about 15 minutes long and it's like him being interviewed from a jail cell and it is just it's 
terrifying. It's just like this guy, thank God he was... Like when he's bald and has an X and a white beard? No, this was when he still had his hair. Um, Mm. And he's just the... Just watching him and just seeing him, like, thank goodness he was behind bars, like, all of his life, or, like, most of his life, just because even behind bars, he's, like, no remorse. He had all these ideas of what he wanted to do. Like, it's 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 kind of, it's real bone-chilling type of thing. So th- this this movie is worth the buy strictly just because, like, all the extras are so weird, and you get, like, this crazy interview with Charles Manson himself and the movie itself is just really good but just done in a very unique way so the Manson family oh yeah I definitely recommended so do you think do you think you'll do you think at any point you'll ever watch it oh yeah yeah um especially now um after seeing once upon a time in Hollywood um even though he's not a major presence in the film or doesn't have a big part in the film like his presence still feels pretty large there so um it's just kind of sparked my curiosity i was very big into like i mentioned last week i believe that uh, into true crime when i was in high school and so i remember uh owning the 2004 version of helter skelter and i had the book um but it's been so long and i can't recall too many of the details but uh right now and after seeing charlie says i've just i'd like to see some more uh, or i guess better depictions of what went down on that ranch um because some of the best stuff that i've seen has been documentaries but not too many narrative films and like do you i i, I don't know is there like a fascination you think that maybe you and I or other people have with them at all? Um, I mean, it's kind of goes into like a lot of the dark movies out there. We kind of like to live vicariously and, and study human psychology. And he's such a interesting guy, you know, being somebody who was fascinated with music and wanted to be that, like another member of the beach boys. And then it just not panning out for him. And then starting this, religion so to speak and then just the power that he had over people and how people were so willing to kind of just give themselves over entirely leave their families behind is just crazy and like i said uh last week with uh, charlie says and a, a thing that i really appreciated about the film and found very fascinating is that it kind of, the movie, even though I have my qualms with it, and I, I think it's a pretty problematic movie overall. Like it has its moments where it really taps into what makes Charles Manson such a figure that's so compelling. Um, and it's that uh, scene that I was discussing last week, where he had a woman um, just talk about herself. And then show the scars that were on her body from her past. And then she just had a hard time kind of like putting herself out there. And then it's the first time that she just felt accepted by people. Like she found her people. And uh, he would have people like do these exercises that was a way to kind of get rid of like put their ego behind themselves. Or put their ego behind and just kind of forget their entire lives 
of like what happened before and just focus on the now and that's what they did and so i just find that all that history of like what went down at that ranch and the people that he got to be a part of the family uh just to be really fascinating so i think that's that's probably the same reaction that a lot of people have that are just as interested as I am with uh, everything that uh, went down with uh, under his under his wing. Yeah, no, I'm I get it. Um, so, uh, what other besides this? I mean, I just went on about this Manson family movie, which I love. But is there another one that really sticks with you, uh, based on the Charles Manson stuff? Um, there's there's a few documentaries. Um, uh, one of them was, um, I believe it was called the six degrees of helter skelter. Uh huh. Is that the 1976 just, one or the 2004 one? Uh, I think it was the 2009 version. Okay. 2009 version. Okay. Yeah. I believe there's, I, I, I I'm sure there is like a, a lot better documentaries out there, but, uh, it, it was one that I remember, uh, watching cause 2009 was, Probably yeah, it was a year after I graduated from high school. So um, I it it was a time when I was just really getting involved with like a bunch of true crime stuff. Um, so that 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 was one that kind of stuck out to me because uh, it 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 has you walking through the footsteps of of the family and um, focuses on a lot of different aspects of of him as a serial killer. Um, but other than that, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I just don't really recall too many of the other films. I mean, at, for how much content is out there about him, like even we talked about it last week with, you know, having the haunting of sharing Tate, Charlie says, and now this film, like it, they all kind of bleed into bleed on each other. And so it's kind of hard to kind of keep up with them. But, um, I mean, outside of just, like, the 1976 version of Helter Skelter, um, uh, I, that, that's, like, the, the, the one that I think of the most when, I, uh, when it comes to, like, hey, what's a good uh, Charles Manson film? I usually go to that one. Okay, yeah. No, I, I've, seen some, I've seen a documentary or two. I remember seeing Helter Skelter... The 1976 version. I have not seen the 2004 version, but I. Well, the 2004 version focuses more on just the family, while uh, the 76 version one kind of kind of provides the the detective side of it, uh, the trial and things like that. And so, uh, as I mentioned last week, it's like it's kind of hard to get into. <clears throat> a film when it's just focusing entirely on the most disgusting aspects of the story. Um, at, at that point, it just, it, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. It just seems like, like you're watching like a, a bad movie where you cannot identify with any of the people in it and you just find it to be such a gross experience. And so I feel like when you tackle a story like this, uh, it needs to have, uh, be multidimensional. Uh, I think that's why, you know, when we get into once upon a time in, uh, Hollywood, um, it, it's one of the more interesting takes, even though it's not, 
a huge part of it, but it's just uh, James Coakley and I were having a discussion earlier today, just saying like, when you think of 1969, that's just, it was part of the time period. You have to include it, especially when your, your story's set in Hollywood. So uh, just the fact that once upon a time made it more about other things and didn't entirely focus on it, it allows the audience to kind of pump the brakes and then be more curious about where it's going to go. And then it can have a more profound impact. And so th- those are the, the Manson narratives that I tend to value. But uh, watching a documentary allows me to kind of look at it through a lens and keep a distance versus watching a narrative which they want to cause you to really be into it and be immersed in the story and and charles manson it's hard to get immersed in a story like that right right it is uh it's uh, i don't know because you you know you're you're not glorifying this guy at all but do you think like any of these movies glorify him at all uh i see i i would I would say from memory that that 2004 version does, but uh, uh, like Charlie says, it didn't really glorify him. Uh, I think it brings like a more of a humanity to him. So he doesn't, cause a, a common approach is to kind of paint him mostly as a monster. But um, I don't think that Charlie says, even though it has that humanity side to him, makes him like, uh, oh, I understand why he would do this. Um, I mean, he's still a piece of shit. So, um, yeah, I I, I don't know. Other than that, maybe the 2004 version, which I haven't seen in a long time, so don't take that as fact. Um, I don't think I recall one that takes that direction, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is one out there that does that. All right. So earlier, just a little bit ago, you mentioned The Haunting of Sharon Tate. I uh, watched that movie. Oh, really? It's not good. <laughs> oh, well, it's, big surprise. Big, How big was surprise. Uh, Hillary Duff in it? Hugely miscast. <laughs> Hugely miscast. So the movie, The Haunting of Sharon Tate, uh, it, it begins with uh, Sharon Tate being pregnant, returning to L.A., while her husband, Roman Polanski, stays in London to work on his next movie. And so they kind of bill this as like a horror film, and there's like a lot of horror tropes in it, and none of them are really done well. So basically, throughout the movie, Sharon Tate is having like uh, premonitions about her murder, uh, such as like she goes to a uh, fortune teller and asks, like, will I ask? A, That's silly. A long happy life, and the ball says no, <laughs> and it's just, it's ridiculous. And she'll have like these dreams where she's being haunted by kind of like a mysterious man with like followers. Like it it doesn't do it justice. Like there's like some like gory moments and stuff like that, but it's like. Telling this story, which happened in real life, it doesn't do it. It doesn't, like, there's a respectful way to do it, and there's not a respectful way to do it, and this is not the respectful way to do it. I think they just kind of took the story and made their, oh, we're going to make this a horror. Yeah, it's not good. Don't don't see it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, I admire when films have that ambition to kind of do a different story, but when it comes to this, like, yeah, I mean, you look at the title, The Haunting. 
I was like, no, it, it was complete surprise. Um, yeah, the movie, so like, yeah, if you even look like at the poster, it's like a knife with Duff's yeah, with face, and then there's like a silhouetted like person standing looking at her. That's kind of that's kind of what it is, and it, it's not good. They didn't do a good job with it. No, it the, the reality is is it was strangers, right, coming right. into the house. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, I think a good version of something that because uh, a movie that came to mind when you were describing that and I was like oh the movie Lizzie that came out like last year that uh, had Kristen Stewart and Chloe uh, Simonier what's her name Sevigny yeah um, she like we know what the outcome of the story of Lizzie Borden but it doesn't create some sort of thing where it like hints at the inevitable uh later because we know the outcome but the people in the movie do not uh so it doesn't treat it like the uh the characters are just as intelligent as the audience members no what makes it crazy is the shock of it all um so the movie lizzie does a good job of doing that um but i could understand that it would probably be a very boring movie if you had Sharon Tate, uh, unless you're in Tarantino, who can make it interesting by kind of tapping into uh, the grace of who she was as a person. Because anybody that worked with her said that she was just like this most delightful person, just a joy to be around. And you get that from from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But uh, any other filmmaker probably has to go to that degree and make it a uh, conventional horror movie that has those that lives up to the title of haunting in the title. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty damn silly. It is. And the other, well, the other one I just wanted to mention, it is a 1989 documentary uh, called Charles Manson superstar. Have you heard of this or seen this? Uh, no. So 1989 documentary called Charles Manson Superstar and pretty much the entire documentary is like one long interview or several interviews with Charlie Manson uh, in the 80s behind bars. I'm I'm looking at the the poster in the stills and yeah, I I don't think I've seen it, but I've seen like clips and things of it coming up on articles and such things. Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty cool documentary, and I haven't seen it in a long time, but it is, I believe, on DVD. And I mean, if you you know the the, the big craze in television and streaming right now is true crime. So uh, <laughs> the I mean, if you haven't seen Superstar, Charles Manson Superstar, you would probably really enjoy this because it just it gives like so many different looks at this person <laughs> and uh it just it it never hits you over the head if i remember correctly of like this guy is bad but it also it like allows you to like oh he was a he, he was just a like a songwriter and he was uh he, and then he went down this path you know it's 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 really interesting to see and it just like lets you take him for what it is instead of just like you know charles manson bad guy type of thing which we I mean he is but 
So I, it's it's a cool movie to watch. Um, Charles Manson Superstar, if you can find it. I have no idea if it's on YouTube or anywhere. I just remember it being on DVD. So um, are are there any uh, Manson films out there that focus on the aftermath of like him being in prison and how he associated with other people? Not that I'm aware of. Like that would be really interesting, you know, to like where they are now and like the aftermath of the murders and when everybody like he got, got married right no he got married in prison yeah for sure uh and i remember there was there was a recent tv show on netflix where i i think it was this this tv show where this guy like went around the world doing like very weird vacations and one of them i believe was when he went to like um Charles Manson's like best friend's house where he had a shrine to him. And I believe they talked with like his wife and stuff like that. And it was just like really interesting to see like how a lot of people visited there and what this guy was like, you know, basically he said he was misunderstood, but (laughs) it's just really weird, you know, to hear something like that, you know? Right. Yeah. So, um, Another thing I wanted to bring up, um, there's a, I think it's either a Life magazine or Time magazine. They put out this pretty great issue where it just like focuses like across the whole timeline of Charles Manson of like the kind of person that he was before the the murders took place of his uh, ambition of being or his passion of music and doing songs like Cease to Exist and uh his life on the ranch and then uh uh his life after the fact being in prison and then the sort of icon that he became even though he did all these bad things um like you know inspiring rob zombie and marilyn manson and uh the look of certain rock stars like axel rose um so it's kind of Go ahead. You know, you're you're right because I mean, even in audio commentaries from Rob Zombie for House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, he has said like we watched Manson tapes and stuff like that, and we directly got a lot of that stuff and put it in this movie, kind of like how they That's, were acting and the camera angles and stuff like that. Yeah, like uh, Hellbilly Deluxe has. Uh, Rob Zombie on the cover with that swastika X thing that's on Manson's uh, forehead or was on his forehead when he was in prison. Um, So that's, that's just must be a really weird thing to uh, decide that you're gonna, you know, make somebody who did all these bad things, your idol. Um, But, you know, you, some pe- people who have uh, a dark side to them, and I guess uh, Rob Zombie was not afraid to tap into that. And I, and I have to mention, uh, James Cole Clay texted, because uh, he's listening in. He's going to join us later, but he uh, said that the Charles Manson Superstar documentary is available on Amazon Prime, so thank you. Thank you, Cole. You can also watch it on YouTube for free if you want to be that asshole. <laughs> but it's YouTube, though, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's YouTube. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Hey, people I, write, uh, watch bootlegs shit out there. That's true. And you know what? I know it's off topic, but, I mean, 
doing bootlegs and pirating stuff. Like it's, I you almost want to do it because all these companies are trying to charge you an arm and a leg to just do their content where it could have been easy just with like three of them. But that's another that's another podcast. Yeah, we could spend a long time talking about how everybody's getting their own streaming service today, and then we're gonna hit a wall and be like, "Oh, nobody's making money again." Okay, let's go back to the old way. <laughs> and, right. Or or it's just gonna be Netflix being like, "Okay, we'll forgive you. We'll buy you back." True. Um, and then uh, there is a uh, I, I believe if you if you watch uh, like some Beach Boys documentaries. Uh, I think one of them's called Summer Dreams, the Beach Boys story. Uh, uh-huh. There's there's a quite a bit about Manson in there because Charlie Manson was friends with them. <laughs> so it, it just uh, that's there. There's that in there too. But I mean, it's not like a Manson documentary, but there's part of him in there. Uh, but yeah, there it's it. Just like we're seeing on Netflix now with all these movies, like even Zac Efron played a brutal serial killer, really. You know, it's just, uh, we'll find these people fascinating. And can you say they're geniuses? Perhaps. Like they constructed and followed through and did all of this stuff. You know, you wish they would use like maybe their genius to do something else than what they did. But something in these people's minds, it's fascinating, I think. And that's why there's movies and documentaries about them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, which I think brings us. Are we gonna are we gonna jump into uh to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yep. That's where I put it in. So, uh, James Cole Clay, if you are if you are listening, we would love you to join us today. Be that be that cowboy Curtis and knock on our playhouse door. <laughs> How you doing, fellas? <laughs> How you doing? Uh, so, I know you were listening in a little bit. Did it, did any of these movies you've seen or want to see now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, I am like knee deep into uh, Charles Manson stuff right now because what I was doing on the other end is I'm researching a massive article I was commissioned to write about cults and how they're depicted in media and why they're depicted in certain ways. Um, So I'm figuring out a thesis kind of element right now. So that's what I've been up to. Okay. Very, very cool. I can't wait to read that because I'm very interested in cults and stuff like that. And I probably have a lot of movies I've watched. About You're secretly cults. in one. Yes, I'm secretly in one. Oh, yep. Can't. No, don't say it. Uh, so Tarantino's ninth movie uh, is out this weekend. And we're just so excited that Tarantino has a new movie out. And it's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Written by Tarantino and starring crazy cast, including Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Emile Hirsch, Timothy Oliphant, Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Al Pacino, amongst many, many others. Even and if you blink and you miss it, right. I'm going to be in there. Samuel, blink and you miss it. Yep. Samuel Jackson was in there for just a second. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty cool. It, it, I think we all really love the movie. And so... Why we're talking about Manson today is that this takes 
place uh, in the span of a couple days. Or not, not a couple of days. I think it's six months. Two days and then six, six months, months. Right. Apart, for, uh, for a third day. Right. And then so right around the time Charles Manson was assembling his uh, followers and, of course, the Sharon Tate tragedy. Um, but again, as we've come to know with Quentin Tarantino, he likes to make his own um, alternative history and which is just so great. So revisionist history. Yes. Yes. And how we would have liked it to play out really. So once upon a time in Hollywood, I mean, guys, we, we have a Tarantino film here and we've seen a trailer. We're excited. So expectations, I believe were super high for this movie. And then we saw the film and, uh, I'll start with Cole. Cole expectations on this movie were they were they good were they bad were did they meet them did they blow it out of the water what do you think well i'm gonna do this entire review in uh the character of rick dalton so you guys ready rick fucking dalton from missouri as well just now to note i'm from anyway no i'm not gonna do that um so yeah holy shit <laughs> i mean where do you start with this i mean um, you know, I was born in the late 80s. Tarantino um, is a, about my dad's age. So this really, you know, when he was coming up, I was figuring out what movies were. And man, it's a big deal. You know, it sounds cliche for guys like us, you know, to love Tarantino. But there is just something so delightful about when a new film of his drops or Really, just even rewatching them. I mean, they hold up so well. So, dude, yes, this movie. I mean, Hateful Eight's good, but this is such a profound movie that I think many will find messy. I think some people might find struggle to find meaning in, but all the while, the movie is still completely inner for anybody. Um, and I, it's it's awesome. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. I loved it. It is. I did too. Just because, like, I think if people are trying to find like a meaning or something like that, like that's not the movie he made. I think he wanted to tell a like the story and tell like this situation and like climate in this time in Hollywood and with the Manson and the uh, Sharon Tate thing being a background piece. And having two people following, trying to do make just you know live life in their careers, and having like this one character who's just very depressed and not happy about anything, and then having Sharon Tate being the complete opposite, just happy to be anywhere and talk to anybody, and it was just just like a really cool thing he did, and I think people are expecting like I think people when they go into Tarantino, they're expecting like the next Pulp Fiction. And because you, he even described it that way in the press, right, right. And so, Preston, what I mean, were your expectations blown out of the water? I mean, I walked out of that. And I was like, God damn, that was good. Were you the same way? Oh yeah, absolutely the same. I do have to say that I was, uh, I was shocked uh, by it not really resembling so much of what he's done lately. Um, I mean, it still has like all of his he's got his fingerprints all over. It still has like that witty dialogue every now and then, but it, like the way that it starts out 
isn't like how he normally starts out his movies. I think, uh, you know, I've discussed before that he tends to start out his movies with a really long dialogue sequence and it's an engaging one, whether it's reservoir dogs, just talking about like how to tip or not tip. And then, uh, just two characters talking in a diner. Um, this one, you know, it, it starts off with, uh, kind of like the lifestyle that, uh, Rick Dalton and his, uh, compadre and his stunt man uh cliff booth played by brad pitt the kind of uh life that they live together and the the careers uh that they have and then how it's kind of just completely faded away through this new transition because you know the 50s of people slicking back their hair and that whole uh dean martin uh age of hollywood is fading is fading away and and we're in a different period and and so uh rick dalton's having a difficult time making that transition um so i was just surprised by how contemplative this movie was how um you know people could say that this movie doesn't have meaning but as much as a big fan as big of a fan as i am of richard linklater uh because i remember having arguments with friends about boyhood and how they said i i don't understand what the point of it was like it just you know just captured my experiences and i was like yeah but that's what makes it so great it captured those experiences causes you to think about them differently and that's kind of what i got from this movie it exists in that space of the night of 1969 and um of course i was not alive during that time but i feel like i'm a very old soul who like I mean, I collect Twilight Time movies. I love watching older films and imagining myself what it was like to be an audience member to watch this and just be like, even if it's slow, and then being like, it's so, so fascinating to be like, this was like one of the big sources of entertainment. We didn't have like entertainment and distractions like we do today. And this was just like meant everything. And I think that's what I appreciated about once upon a time in Hollywood is that it's reflective of that. It feels like a movie that came out in 1969 while also kind of providing some of that commentary. Cause there's moments littered all throughout the movie where it just, it seems like Tarantino is becoming more of aware of like, uh, the, the sorts of problems that people take issue or the people, the sorts of things that uh, people take issue with in his movies. Like it seems a little more progressive. Like he's like making a joke about something um, that might be tied to something that may have happened in one of his past films. And he just like finds like these like interesting ways to kind of uh, turn that around on the viewer in a way. And so I don't know. I, I was just really impressed with how it just really felt like a movie that reflects movies like um uh bob carroll uh ted and alice which is one of my favorite all-time movies and uh the graduate and the wild bunch and then also just feels like it's a a greatest hits collection of his entire filmography and you know tarantino if you've ever read anything about him or seen him in interviews he is a true fan of hollywood and movies that's like he's like if you could you could say he's a nerd about something, it's about movies and old Hollywood. And like he 
really put that on film like because the last several movies he's made have all been like period pieces like world war ii like the old western days and the slave days and then this is kind of more almost modern from those films so it's like interesting to see like him use like the stuff that he loves in this film and just kind of like show all these really cool minute details and really recreate uh that time period here uh yeah yeah well the thing where you bringing that up is this movie i mean you know like tarantino kind of has his own world like red apple cigarettes are going to show up in all of his movies in one way or another um and it's this film feels so lived in with history with every character you know like we know rick dalton we get leo's backstory or we get rick's backstory we get cliff story um, we're starting to see a new backstory happen with Sharon Tate. And, you know, they talk about the legend um, of how they got together. There's that scene with Damian Lewis where he's saying he, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but just laying the, the social, the social aspects out of, you know, the different social groups that they revolve in, in the Hollywood Hills. And so you get a sense of who Emil Hirsch's character is, who plays a real life guy named Jay Sebring um, and his relationship with Polanski. And what's interesting about Polanski and Sharon Tate is, um, we refer, when we're first introduced to them, and really throughout the entire movie, which is – it's really done very sweetly and very tenderly, even though out of can people were giving um, him shit for – or one person gave him shit for uh, her not having much dialogue. But they're not really active participants in the movie. They're existing in their own world while we – while this other world but yeah it's, so it's, it's interesting a, to know yeah it's, it's yeah not go, a go movie ahead. about her it's not no yeah no and you know i just love that 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 feels lived in um there's a scene where um a character asks another character you know uh, was it true that you were actually going to be in uh the great escape with steve mcqueen and replace steve mcqueen and you know and we love those stories like Will Smith was going to be Neo one day, you know, like there was a one world where Will Smith was going to be Neo and Tarantino loves that. And his audience members, he, he creates his own. Um, yeah. Or Will Smith was going to be Django. Um, uh, you know, and that's what I love about this movie. And that's when you can just exist in this movie. And the thing that I wrote about in my review, uh, that I liked a lot that I said, so I'll pat myself on the back is you're in this movie for two hours and five minutes. Yeah, we were in this movie for two hours and 45 minutes or so, two hours, 161, something like that. And, you know, the film, the ending doesn't, it feels a bit rushed compared to the first two thirds of it. But when you wake up, it's like, it's a, it's a crude awakening back to reality. And you leave that dream world. And that's what everybody goes to LA for is that dream. And it's his own private version of Hollywood. And it, it feels so singular and so amazing and so new, even though it has all these prints of reality um, or fact and fiction blends. And it's, it's beautiful and awesome. And you know, what, what else is there to say for, you know, I mean, a lot to say, but it, it's amazing in it, that re- regard. Yeah. It's, it's easy to, to hear us talk about this and like how much we loved it. And it's just, I, I mean, I can't wait to see it again, you know, just because there's just so much to take in and I can't wait to relive some of these special scenes that were in the movie because, like, you've seen Brad Pitt in so many movies, you've seen Leo DiCaprio in so many movies, but in this movie, like, it's just so damn funny to see some of the stuff they do here. Like, 
when Wolf of Wall Street came out, you saw Leo do a whole bunch of stuff they never thought I'd see him do. Well, it's like the same thing is here. Like, there's things he does, and then there's things Brad Pitt does, and it's just, oh, man, it looks like they were having such a good time on set and, like, really just falling into these characters uh, because they're all based off of real people, and it's just, oh, oh, my goodness. It's just so good. Yeah, like, they're uh, breaking down, like, the walls of like uh, of his like a straight actor like i can imagine watching a version of this where leo plays rick dalton as this like straight guy the entire time but doesn't have those moments where he's freaking out in his trailer throwing shit around and going duh, 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 making fun of himself and breaking himself down like that's like things that we do in our entire lives and it's just like one of those moments that just like really brought down the walls uh and made him feel like a like a real person that had flesh on his bones and then cliff booth has like moments like that too uh which which i don't want to get too much into the details of but um i mean you follow him around from like going down sunset boulevard from like one side of the town to the other and just kind of him just listening to the radio and we just like capture like all these meandering moments all these like mundane moments of life but yet you just like really exist in it um and that's something that's always that uh tarantino is always appreciated as a as a filmmaker that you you want to be able to feel like these people can be your friends and you want to like check back in with them after you've seen the movie and be like, man, I really wonder what they're, they're up to. Um, even though, you know, you've seen the movie, but it's just like, you're hanging out with them. Yo, yeah. Yeah. It's easy. It's, it's easy to feel romantic when you leave the movie about Rick and to know that we'll never get to meet Rick again. We'll never know what, happens to him uh, at the at the end of the film yeah. or cliff or anybody and that's really sad <laughs> like i mean well, th- they're done like well, that's th- it and it makes it so great right yeah well i think they're okay. done but i think it's like implied that because they said it earlier on in the film like yeah go meet him and you can be in a roman polanski movie and i feel like their friendship wasn't going to be over because of what happened and they're going to still hang out because leo's going to meet um gonna meet uh sharon tate and they introduce him uh to to oh god what am i I, do do you want to just get into spoilers here because we're really working hard to dance around yeah we are yeah no we 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 have we we have to yeah i mean we've laid down what our general thoughts are we've talked about what they what our feelings are from uh, like a non-spoiler angle. But I feel like at this point there's like a lot of deeper things that should be discussed and uh, involves getting into spoilers. So let's, at this point, I guess spoilers are wide open here. Okay, here. Yeah, here you go. So I, I just think that, the relationship with Rick and Cliff is unbelievable. You know, you have like a semi-famous actor who's trying to get back on top again. I you kind of compare him to John Travolta in a way. And then he has his best friend, Cliff, played by Brad Pitt, who's a stunt double, who 
might have done something in the past, but who knows? We don't really know for sure. And uh, they're just like good friends. And meanwhile, you have Sharon Tate and you have Roman Polanski and Jay Sebring living next door to uh, Leo DiCaprio's uh, character, Rick Dalton. And of course, we all know in real life what happened. The Manson people went up and killed uh, Sharon Tate, Jay uh, Sebring, and a couple other people there, including Sharon Tate's unborn kid. Uh, It's very tragic, but of course... Uh, Tarantino flips that on its head and does exactly kind of like uh, in um, *Inglorious Bastards*. What we really want to see, what would have really, ha- what would we want to see happen in the in history, is that like Hitler gets what's coming to him in a great way. This is kind of what happens in uh, *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*, and it's perfect. But I think like. What Cole was saying, like, we don't get to see, like, what happened to these people afterwards, and you really want to because these characters are so great, but I would like to think, like, oh, okay, so after this crazy thing happened and Sharon Tate survived and everybody's okay, uh, Rick Dalton met Sharon Tate, had a great night, then eventually uh, met Roman Polanski, and Rick Dalton was on top best actor, and him and Brad Pitt didn't have to stop seeing each other. That's what I think the movie alludes to, but I mean, did you get that at all? I don't know. Yeah. 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 Sure. That's exactly. Yeah, of course. Okay. So I just, I just, yeah, think- yeah, but, but I mean, the, the ending isn't necessarily up to interpretation, but I think that the, everything leading up to it is, a, is up to interpretation. Like the scene where Sharon goes to the movie theater and like what that means and how that really correlates to the rest of, the story, but, but you know, like Preston said at the beginning of it, is you can't make this movie without um, paying attention to that fact. You know, if you want to evoke the real world Hollywood, you have to mention her and Polanski. And I think it's—I don't like it when film critics say this, but it seems like a love letter to her memory in a way. And that scene of her it's in so the good. movie theater, so so good. I, I just saw a tweet that was. Uh, railing on Tarantino for not having his longtime editor, and you know because he passed, passed away. away but you know, and like yeah, yeah, it's like he, it says, "Oh boy, does it show?" And I, I disagree. So. That scene is edited like any, unlike anything he's ever done. The cuts they they just they swell, and each image really fills you with a different type of emotion of hope, possibilities, and you know, excitement and being proud of yourself. Right, and, you know, it's like those, like those. No, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just excited. No, because like that was like the antithesis of Leo DiCaprio just being pissed all the time and like crying, and then you see Sharon Tate going to see herself in this movie and her playing like a clumsy, you know, side uh, character, and she's loving it, and she's loving the reaction and just the smiles and laughter she gives and just how the camera's framed around her with her feet up. It's just, it's unbelievably cool how they did that because you're just, you're kind of laughing at Leo and then you see her and you're just like, Oh my goodness. It's like a Disney movie. You know, it's just like, it's just so good and wholesome that I think that he did that yeah. so well. Yeah, it is. And I'm, I'm curious how audiences are going to watch it. Like if most people know who Sharon Tate is, because we're watching it, of course, being like, you know, for the first time being like, okay, well, what's going to happen to her? Is this just, you know, is this very sad? Is this her swan song? I mean, and 
it ends up not being it in the movie, but you know, in real life, it, it was. Yeah, you know? because and he's like, just imagining. You're going into a Tarantino movie, and you're like, we're gonna expect to see some shit. You know, like it's gonna be violent at some point, but is it going to be real or is it gonna be his revisionist history? <laughs> you know, and, you're and it was, something. and it was sweet. Yes, no, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it, it definitely was. That tone was crazy at the end of it just I mean you knew that it was leading to that moment of them of Tarantino getting into the Manson murders but uh of it being like kind of funny but like darkly disturbing I mean of uh Cliff Booth releasing his dog Brandy on Tex and ripping his balls out and then smashing that one girl's face in with the can uh <laughs> then getting set on fire like it's it's so intense but it, it it's it operates very similarly to like what brian was said that brian said with inglorious bastards of you know uh hitler did die but he, allegedly he shot himself but he got the revenge that everybody wants that want if if we could redo it over again we would love to see him get shot to shit and so we as some people who know what went down uh it causes it to be really funny and enjoyable and disturbing and i just can't imagine how it was for him to kind of balance that tone in that moment no it's a fine line yeah go ahead Cole. no i was watching it with my girlfriend uh she went to the screening with me and um, humble brag, but um, she was uh, sitting next to me. Humble brag, but um, <laughs> held my hand. Now, humble brag, <laughs> held my hand. Humble brag, but um, so <laughs> anyway, so we we went in to this movie and we're watching it, and you know we're like okay, and you know you guys know me, I'm a high energy guy, and I'm watching this movie. And I'm like hyperventilating. I'm like, holy shit, it's happening. It's happening. It's like somebody going to see Star Wars or something like that. Um, and which, you know, and so we're going along two hours and 20 minutes in. And all of a sudden she leans over to me. And she goes, holy shit, I forgot this was a Quentin Tarantino movie. The second that that can of Dinky do hits her in the face, you're like, oh, my God. And, you know, Brad Pitt is two weeks younger than my dad. And Oh my god, he's so cool! Like the coolest dude um, in this movie, maybe his coolest role yet. And um, the way he rears back, just you know. And I know that we're progressing with the ideas of masculinity in this country at this point, but the the way he rears up, just like a real man badass, <laughs> and just this old school dude rears back and throws that like a baseball with his arm, with his perfect form. Just a perfect strike, you know. It, it's so visceral and so shocking. And, you know, guys, to mention Linklater, guys like him and Linklater, you know, Linklater has a, a history with baseball and the way that men were in this time. And and I would say these guys are problematic, you know, to a certain extent. And there, it's, a, it's not necessarily a noble feat, them just going around smoking, drinking, and getting laid. But the way that it's framed is still so nostalgic for that that type of person there's nobody like cliff booth anymore no you know and you miss him and, like and i love that that yeah. scene with him and uh bruce lee uh 
it, so <laughs> that that scene is basically what you're saying. Like, there's nobody like Cliff yeah. anymore. And then the yeah. new the new hotness, Bruce Lee, was trying to like, I'm the best. And Cliff's like, No, you ain't. <laughs> and, and like drinking that carnation milk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was just it was, that. That's absolutely. And like Preston said earlier, it's like kind of like that age of like the westerns was dying out and all the hippies were moving in and just these actors were trying to find their place in the world and trying to fit in and uh it's you know it was just a great scene to see like oh that like the new hotness bruce lee talking shit and uh brad pitt's character cliff's like no no let's see here and it just oh it was so perfect and i i just i love that scene and the Another, there's so many other scenes I want to talk talk about, but the other scene that was so funny that's in the trailer is when the eight year old actress tells Leo DiCaprio, "That's the best acting I've ever seen," and it's so goddamn funny because it like really reminded me of Wes Anderson's first movie. Um. Well, what was it called? Bottle Rocket. Uh, yeah, Rocket. Yeah, Bottle Rocket, and. There's a scene where Dignan says, like, she's disappointed in you? How old is she? What has she done with her life? And just uh, Rick Dalton just being so overwhelmed and crying that this eight-year-old says the best acting she's ever seen. But then, like, the joke is, like, she's eight. (laughs) She's not seen anything. (laughs) And it was just so goddamn funny to me that, like, that's, like, all he needed to hear was that he was good. (laughs) And it, like, gave him this sense of... (laughs) confidence by an eight-year-old it just it cracked me up (laughs) yeah so so um so so what i was gonna ask is uh what were y'all's favorite scenes in the movie because um i think mine was probably the scene with her and him with uh leo and i guess trudy is her name i think she says her name but i think that trudy's her character name but the scene where they're sitting on their chairs and it, it just had so much time to breathe we weren't in a hurry and it was unlike anything tarantino does because when he does those long dialogue scenes they're mainly tension filled um and this was just about discovery and humanity and these different generations um coming together and talking about i guess their craft but all all the while he's like hung over and hawking loogies and (laughs) trying to smoke that cigarette but i and all that and I think that scene works because she's so confident and he is totally not confident and he's just like wanting to fit in. (laughs) It seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. What what was y'all's favorite scenes? Um, one of the ones that sticks out to me other than the, the, the freak out that Rick Dalton has and any of the moments of, or I guess the moment with Brad Pitt or Cliff Booth, getting stoned on the acid dip cigarette at the end. Uh, but the, I really like the sequence where Cliff Booth gets to uh, the ranch. Yes. And, and you're like, oh, fuck, what the hell is going to happen here? <laughs> and that, that tension that's kind of cranking up, uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, Zodiac when uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character gets into that room and then he hears like, stuff going on upstairs and you're like what the fuck and it gets like that when he gets inside that house and then he meets uh, squeaky played by dakota fanning and then bruce dern bruce um, dern was so funny yeah 
That 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 was almost uh, Burt Reynolds. For yes. Yep. Yeah, that's true. That would have been great. Yeah. That scene but, was so uh, good. Yeah, I love that scene. That scene was good. Uh, I, I was I was gonna mention that scene. I uh, really uh, loved the, the the Bruce Lee scene was so good. But I really loved the scene which like made me laugh out loud was when like towards the end. And uh, right before they came up to the house was um, <laughs> DiCaprio making his margarita, bringing his margarita a blender out to the curb and yelling at the hippies and yelling, goddamn fucking hippies. And then saying, get this mechanical asshole out of here. And, <laughs> and just drinking out of the blender. It was just like so perfect to me. And I don't know why I love that scene, but that scene, like, it just stuck with me because I feel like I would do the same thing if I heard that. I would go out in my robe in a blender and just, oh, so, it was so good. It was so funny. Oh, my goodness. I I enjoyed all the, like, the family guy type of tangents that they would go on. (laughs) Yes. was the what was the tangent that he went on when he took Brad Pitt Turk took off his shirt on the roof? <laughs> uh, of of him possibly. It was uh, a long tangent. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was the, it ends with. Uh, is it the one that ends with him possibly killing his wife? Or I think that mm-hmm. might have been early. Yeah, but it was yeah, like yeah, the no, whole, I, It was the whole Bruce Lee yeah. thing. Okay, yeah, no, yeah. So fu- that that was great how they did that. But even like all the clips with like Rick Dalton and other stuff, like they would just it was it was like an avenue for Tarantino just to make so many different movies. Kind of like the the lemon sequence from uh, Wolf of Wall Street felt like a movie within a movie. Like he got to do that like ten times. Yeah, that was well, that when was they're cool. on that show when he's when it's like him versus Luke Perry. And Timothy Oliphant, I mean, you get completely sucked into that. And every once in a while, you'll hear that director who was who hired him, <laughs> who hires him, just like yelling in the background, like you know, yelling. Peter Fonda. Uh, was that Peter Fonda? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, oh my, oh yeah, you're probably right. Um, uh, like that. That is crazy that that's Peter Fonda. That's how, you know, it, it's hard for these movies to have these people disappear into these roles. Cause it's always just Leo. It's always just Julia Roberts um, and things like that. And you just, you just completely forget. That's why it's like so immersive. But when you're just watching that TV show, like an old gun smoke episode or something like that, man, you just get so sucked into it. And then, you know, I love it when it's just like a slap in the face to bring you back into Tarantino's movie. And that's, what's so fun about it. I mean, It's easier yeah. for him to do it in this movie because it, you, normally when you have like that many stars, it can become a distraction. But because the movie is about Hollywood, they can completely get away from that and it still comes off in that natural way that you were describing. Totally. Well, sure. um, and I, I think an inc- inconsequential character, but I like the character anyway, was uh, Pacino's character, uh, Schwarz. <laughs> <laughs> Oh shit, man! I'm sorry, <laughs> Marvin Schwartz. Just because, like, very stereotypical Hollywood producer and agent in that time period, and like he just played it so funny and well, and uh, just you know, Leo, just like, okay, I'm gonna listen to you, and it was just great 
him telling the story about watching his movie marathon and then showing him actually do it, like, was just so perfect. I just, I loved it. Yeah. Yep. Ah, it, was, it was just good. I, I want to see the movie, like, this weekend again. Like, do you want to see the film uh, The 14th Fist of McCluskey? Yes. Like, I hope <laughs> that uh, Tarantino made, like, yeah. a 15-minute short film of that movie because I want to see... The, that Nazi movie so badly. I'm I'm sure he did because he did that with that uh, Inglorious Bastards uh-huh. bit too. So it could yeah. be a DVD extra of them showing like at least a ten minute sort of thing that they put together of that. Uh, even the FBI episode that Rick Dalton did uh, probably would have been really enjoyable. But they show most <laughs> of that in that in the movie. It's so great when they're sitting on Rick's couch drinking. The, he goes, you know, he goes, let's have a beer and a pizza. And they're sitting there and they're watching the movie and it says Rick Dalton and it just comes as just like a random like headshot of him and Brad Pitt just starts like laughing. They just get such a kick out of what's going on. Uh, just that they still just love, even though he's on TV, you know, he says to him something along the lines of like, you know, this is not the fate worse than death that you think it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, Brad Pitt still like gets, he loves it, you know, because like let's say – you know, you can think about it even when it comes to real life. We would love to all be uh, full-time uh, film critics with tons of um, notoriety, blah, 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 blah. But, but that's what we strive for. And there, Rick wanted to be the next Steve McQueen, but he fell from grace. There are film critics who want to be, be like executives and things like that that are settling. So it's just interesting – to think about the pecking order and to think about how Rick's perception of reality versus Cliff's, you get that two different spectrum, you know, that he's like, man, this is so cool. You're on the show. What a, what a kick. You're on this FBI show on a Sunday night. We're drinking beer. We're eating pizza. We're smoking cigarettes. What, what could be better? What a life, you know? And you think about that, you know, cause normally when I'm watching these Tarantino movies, I'm not thinking about my own life. I'm just completely escaping. Um, and so, it it's it's so heartwarming. It it's like so heartwarming. I cannot wait to see it again. There lies the meaning of the film. That it exactly. can have that effect. Uh, yeah. Do do you guys remember? Do you guys? Sorry, I just have so many like different things. I'm getting like one thing to another. Do you guys remember the film with Rutger Hauer, R.I.P. Um, a breed apart. Yes. Yeah. Where he has the eye patch. That's what that 14 fist of McCluskey makes me think of. It's just like that. that, that I'm like looking at the poster and I'm like, yes, this is awesome. So anyway, Except that sucked. movie was boring. So, yeah, it sucked. I remember you telling me it sucks. A breed apart. Oh, yes. Um, May you rest in peace. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, the, go, go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is... Two hours and 40 minutes, and it is just, it's worth every minute of it. And I mean, for people who say, like, I'm a movie buff, I'm a film buff, like, this movie is for you. Like, this is all about that time and making films. And it's just, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Well, you set up the platform for me to talk a little bit about watching it in 35 millimeter. So, as I talked about briefly before we started, um, I got to take a tour of the projection room, um, which I've done before in my life, but I haven't seen it, especially an Alamo one. Um, I think I've done it maybe at the Las Colinas location. Usually when they open up a new location, you get a tour of the place and get to see like 
what makes this movie theater different from any of the other Alamos. Um, but to go to like the first Alamo theater that opened in the Dallas Fort Worth area, which is at Richardson, um, to kind of see like when I, I got, you know, they take me upstairs. I have to like sign in, uh, cause everybody who goes up there has to sign in and you get up there and it's just super dark, really cluttered. And there's just pro- projectors everywhere and, uh, all these like props and stuff. It just like, it looked like an attic, which was insane that, uh, cause the p- person that was showing me around, she's like, I'm like really used to it. it kind of, it's like muscle memory at this point that we know how to get around properly. And, um, and then they took me over to, I think her name was, uh, maybe I shouldn't say, cause, uh, I don't want to goof it up, but she was super nice. And, uh, she has like 10 years of experience of being a projectionist. Cause the Alamo does at least, one to two screenings a month that are in 35 millimeter since the world's gone digital it's it's a dying art form and it's an art to be able to pull that off successfully and especially with a tarantino film and uh i asked the projectionist i was like did you feel any more added pressure to get this screening right because of that fiasco that happened with the hateful eight when they screened it and then uh something went wrong and then tarantino got super pissed and i didn't know if tarantino had like this list of guidelines of like you need to have the sound right here you need to do this and that uh but they didn't get one like that christopher nolan does that but um i got to see that it takes nine reels of film to watch um once upon a time in uh hollywood and each reel is about 20 minutes long and when i got up there the lady was uh manually marking the film because when she got it uh it was not marked like brad pitt says in um fight club you get that cigarette burn moment that lets you know hey the reel's about to be over you need to change it and so she was manually adding the marks using like the special marker and so, um, <clears throat> Brian, you probably noticed when we watched the movie, the X that would happen a few seconds before it would be like this nice kind of cl- relatively clean cut. Uh, it usually happened like the end of a scene and not during the middle of one. So that like really helped. But, man, I wish I could have been up there to see like what it looks like when uh, they have like two or three projectors going and then they just kind of go snap, turn it on. But the only thing I saw was just the process of the marking. Um, but it's really cool. And I think, uh, for a film like this or any of Tarantino's films, they work, they do really well in that format, uh, to watch it on film, to have all those scratches and pops and, uh, sometimes getting that slight shake that you would get. I think, one of the reels, like maybe the sixth one that played during the movie, it like shook for like a little bit in the beginning. So I was wondering then, if that was a pro, if that was like supposed to be that way, or if that was Alamo's like table like that it was on that it was shaking because that was visibly noticeable. And I was like, is my are my eyes fucking with me? Because I, I don't think it was part. I don't think it was in the film. I okay. think it was either there or um, it just took a minute for it to iron out. It did. It did get better by the end, but uh, it, it's all part of the experience. It just, um, 
you know, it looks clean. It looks nice when you can watch it in digital, but there's just some films that you watch that kind of call for that format. And I think this is one of them that, you know, it's a movie that, as we've said over and over on here, that is a Valentine for 1960s films and uh, that culture. And that was something that was special. And so even in the movie, you know, having the Sharon Tate moment of her watching the film and watching it in a projector, it just, it's all, it's all one. And so um, if you want to see it, you can see it at one of the Alamo draft house locations, at least in DFW, they're doing Cedars, um, Las Colinas and Richardson are doing it that, but I think 45, theaters across the nation are uh, presenting it that way either in 70 millimeter or 35 but um it's really cool but uh otherwise there's the digital version that you can watch in every other theater yeah it's it's good go see this movie it's fantastic um any final thoughts on uh the show or once upon a time in hollywood i'm sure there's way more to talk about but uh that that's that's all the stuff that kind of comes to mind at the moment, but I'm sure as we see it more and more, we're going to be like, Oh man, there's this other part, but that's what makes the movie uh, so special um, that you can watch it again and be like, Oh man, I didn't even catch this the first time. And he's probably t- commenting on this and it it's reflective of his, his own career of being somebody that's not like Rip Dalton is like, how, how does he transitioning as a filmmaker, Quentin Tarantino himself transitioning as a filmmaker in his own life when we're so crowded with superhero films and things like that, that he's still that filmmaker that's maintaining the bridge between the new and old ways. Right. Well, go see once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, And that I think wraps up our episode, my bloody podcast, the Manson episode. Um, I'm Brian Kluger. Find me at boomstickcomics.com or highdefdigest.com. And this is the My Bloody Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and of course, uh, James Cole Clay. Thank you for joining us. Uh, is he still there? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm still here. Absolutely. Where can everybody find you online, good sir? Um, well, you can find me mainly at Fresh Fiction. I have uh, some. What else that have I been up to? Oh yeah, I um, have a piece coming out that I've talked about in a couple of weeks. Um, I've been trying to get some sources for on this website called Consequence of Sound, where I'm going to talk about Charles Manson, why media always keep depicting cults, and in particular Charles Manson. So um, I think it's going to be some good stuff. Lots of fun research that I've been doing lately. And I listened to Cease to Exist by Charles Manson twice last night because of this article. So that was great that Preston brought that up. (laughs) Sweet deal. Got to go check out that article on Consequence of Sound. And I always love FreshFiction.tv. Love that place. Hell yeah. Love those. um, Preston, where are you at these days? uh, FreshFiction.tv. I'm the features editor there. And uh, you can find the bulk of my writing on in the Denton Record Chronicle at Denton, D-E-N-T-O-N-R-C.com. Uh, got a few articles, including my review for Once Upon a Time, and uh, I have an article coming out on the 35 millimeter experience. 
and uh, some stuff for the farewell that's coming out uh, this weekend as well. So uh, staying busy and then watched a bunch of Blu-rays that are going to be that I'm going to have an article out about that as well. So uh, staying busy on Fresh Fiction and Didn't Wreck a Chronicle. Sweet. And we'll be back next week with more horror stuff on my bloody podcast. And we'll probably give you our rundown of the Zombieland 2 trailer. Until next time, double tap it, and once upon a time in Hollywood. We love you. Thank you, everyone.